0: Even though one school might be offering you more money, it might not necessarily save you more because it really comes down to what the cost of that school is going to be. And then also, you can go back to these schools and you can let them know. You can send them a letter and try to push them to see if they'll give you more money.
1: From Test Takers, this is the Hashtag Prep Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you learn more about standardized testing and college admissions so that you can help your students navigate this important time with accurate and insightful information. Hosted by Test Taker's Director of Development, Andrew Akara, and Director of Personnel, Jeremy Free. So prepare to learn the secrets that will help your students gain clarity, reduce stress, and work smarter, not harder. This is the Hashtag Prep Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to another week of Hashtag Prepped. My name is Naka, and on this episode, which will probably be one of my most favorite episodes, we'll be having our first guest from outside the world of test preparation and college admissions to help us discuss the ins and outs of submitting the tremendously valuable FAFSA forms. Today, we have Ryan Morrissey of Retire With Ryan. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do?
0: Sure. Hi, Naka. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm a financial planner. I'm located in Connecticut and I help people with retirement planning and with college planning. And as you mentioned, I have a podcast focused on retirement planning as well called Retire with Ryan.
1: It's a fantastic podcast. I've checked out many episodes. I love your introduction, very mellow and kind of a calm introduction versus our hard rock (laughs) intro here.
0: (laughs) Yes, thank you.
1: Well, Ryan, what got you interested in helping people plan for college?
0: Sure. Yeah. I'm a father of two children. I have a three-year-old and a three-month-old. And after you know, focusing on retirement planning for many years for my clients. Now that I'm a a father, I was worried about what's college going to look like. So I started looking into that and started expanding the the service that I offer to clients to to involve that now. It's a
1: tremendously holistic process, especially with the the college admissions. It's not just getting into college, it's how are you going to finance it as well. So Ryan, what is the FAFSA?
0: Yes. The FAFSA is the Free Application for Federal Student Aid. That's what that stands for. And it's a federal form that you can fill out beginning in October of your senior year, and it helps you to figure out what federal aid, essentially need-based aid, that you might qualify
1: yeah, so the start for the fast form I think it believes it opens up on October 1st.
0: Yeah, so you know, you can you can start right then or you could wait longer. But the the big thing's to worry about is that if you do wait, it's whether or not in your own state what the cutoff is for need-based aid. And a lot of states are first come, first serve. So if you do wait too long, you could possibly miss opportunities from state schools to qualify for that.
1: So Ryan, where can I find these FAFSA forms?
0: So the one that you actually fill out, it's, I believe it's fafsa.gov that you go. And there is, however, a paper version, which you can download. And we'll talk more about that. But if you're actually at the point where now your child is a senior and you're wondering what type of need-based aid they qualify for, then you'd want to go and fill out the the one online.
1: And what type of aid are students possibly eligible for?
0: Uh, there's two types. There's what we're talking about with the FAFSA is is need-based aid, and that's based on the parents' financial situation as well as the students, how much income the students and parents make as well as assets that they have. And then there's also merit-based aid, which would be based on someone's you know grades and academic achievements and then there's obviously sports related aid as well for students that are going to play sports in college whether that be at a division one or two level and then there's schools that you know division three schools don't actually have scholarships but they offer aid as well that is could be better for some students than a scholarship because of just the uh, flexibility they have with that.
1: So is the FAFSA required by students to fill out?
0: No, uh, it's actually not. So something that I read recently, I think as of last year or two years ago, maybe about like 70, i don't know, 72 or 3% of all students that attended college, all freshmen had filled out the FAFSA. But that number has actually declined. I think this year to like sixty-two percent. So there's been a decline, and that's you know part of the reason, w- which we'll talk about in a little bit. I think is why there's some changes on the horizon with that.
1: Okay. So especially since there's a little bit of a decline in people applying or at least taking advantage of this FAFSA, this is definitely some valuable information that parents will be getting out of today's episode.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's quite a complicated form, you could say. There's a lot of information on it, but it is something that you should be able to to put together once you just have the information that you need. Yeah.
1: Because ultimately, what is the purpose of the FAFSA
0: form? It's to see if you qualify for need-based aid. And- Depending on, I'm sure you work with a number of different clients from different backgrounds. If you're you're in a situation where you have low income and not a lot of assets that could be used for college, then you might be qualifying for a tremendous amount of aid. And if you have high income and a high amount of assets, then you might not qualify for any aid. And then obviously you could fall in between. So once you fill that out, what you get out of that is what's called your expected family contribution, your EFC. So that number tells you how much you're supposed to, or your is supposed to contribute towards the cost of college. And then that number is used once you apply to a school that uses the FAFSA to figure out how much aid you'd be eligible for. So we'll just use an example, right? Let's just say you applied to Villanova University, a school in the Northeast. I think last I checked, that's like $72,000 a year. Very few people, when you see these prices, and they are high, ever pay the full price. Because let's just say then your expected family contribution was $30,000. Well, that would be the amount that you'd be expected to pay for that school. So depending on the school, not all schools cover 100% of your need. And that scenario, right? there's $42,000 that the school could help cover. Part of that might be in uh, scholarships and, and grants, but part of that might be in you know the, the federal loans that are available to you as well.
1: Yeah. So it's absolutely valuable just to apply for the FAFSA, just to see what you get, because you might get something at the end of the day.
0: Yeah. it's It definitely doesn't hurt to do the FAFSA, right? It's it's some of your time, obviously, to do it. And, and at least then you know what your expected family contribution is. And that will help you to then decide, all right, well, now you know what your expected family contribution is to start to look at schools to figure out which ones are better at meeting aid than others. And some schools meet 100% of students' needs. Other schools only meet like 40, 50%. And until you really know that, what your expected family contribution is, and and also the schools that you've applied to, to see what their offers are, you then don't know what you were potentially on the hook for paying for or borrowing for, right?
1: Oh, interesting. So to determine the EFC and the information needed, what information is needed for the FAFSA?
0: Yeah, so you need your tax return, but FAFSA is able to grab your recent tax return. There are some situations where, if you are, um, if your parents are divorced or there's different custodial agreements, then it might not be as straightforward, but it will it will pull that in. And then the other things that you need to know are the assets that you have. So what it asks for, the FAFSA is really concerned with non-retirement assets. So, if you have 401ks, IRAs, those are not counted in the FAFSA. But if you have taxable investments, a taxable brokerage account, if you have 529s for all your children, they are counted. If you have rental properties, they want to know what the equity is in those rental properties, and um, you know cash in the bank. As well as another big thing is if you have set up what are known as you know any assets in your child's name, which is something called a UGMA or a UTMA account. It's like a a, a trust account, as well as if your child um, is the beneficiary of a trust. So that's the stuff that you need to know. But the nice thing is that the FAFSA only wants to know as of either the most recent statement, but now with technology, you can log into any of these accounts at any point. They want to know the value of these things, right? So if you wait till when things are down, well, that might help you, right? If the stock market crashed and... In early November, right? Well, then maybe that's a good time to fill out the FAFSA because then your assets would be worth less at that day.
1: So, we were talking before about if there were trusts or any money in students' names. How does the FAFSA take into account students' assets versus parents' assets?
0: Uh, The FAFSA counts students' assets uh, at 20%, whereas they count parents' assets, those things we talked about, the taxable accounts, equity and rental properties, right? Cash in the bank. Uh, stocks, bonds at at five point six four percent. So if you think about that, it's a lot better to have money in your parents' name than it is in the, in the students'. Unfortunately, sometimes people think they're helping out their children, right? If you own, let's say, some shares of Apple, or your grandparents did, and they they gifted you these shares of Apple, a lot of you can't actually hold investments as a minor. So the only way to do that is to set up one of these custodial accounts, the Uniform Gift to Minor Act account, the UGMA or the uniform trust to minor account, right? So it's now in the child's name, but the negative is that if let's say that apple stock is now worth $50,000. You take 20% of that, that's $10,000. That's now reduced your expected family contribution by $10,000 because of just that $50,000 in stock. Whereas if that was in the parent's name, right, we'll just round down here, 5% of that is only $2,500 reduction. So if you you know, you're, if you have these accounts, what can you do with them? Well, one thing is that for these UGMA, UTMA, you should probably think of getting rid of them before you fill out the FAFSA. And to, to do it the right way, you need to actually, you can move them over to a 529 plan. You can set up a custodial 529 plan where you can sell the stock or whatever it is, pay the capital gains, and then move it over. And now it's the 529 is considered the parent's asset. So that is actually a tax at the, or not tax, but factored in at the five point six four percent. So that would be better as far as the less of a reduction in the expected family contribution. Just one other thing: a lot (laughs) with the five twenty nine is that normally with a five twenty nine account, that's in the parent's name. Let's say you set a parent sets that up, they can change whoever the beneficiary is at any point. So you could set one up for one child. If they don't use all the money, then you can move it to the next child. But when you move from a custodial account, a UGMA or UTMA to a 529, that's actually still in that child's name. So that asset is theirs. You can't use it for for anyone else but them.
1: Oh, interesting. So with the 529, you can move it from child to child. But with the UGMA, it sticks with the student.
0: That's right. As well as if you move from the UGMA to the custodial 529, then it still is the student's. But there's one other thing that I didn't mention is that these UGMAs and UTMAs, they are the child's money. So you could use it for other things. You could, before they go to school, maybe you buy them a car with the money, right? Maybe you take them on a vacation. You send them to your test prep course. Um, you know, you you send them to a camp, right? Uh, maybe they love sports. You send them to a sports camp for the whole year. You can use that money up in other ways. You don't have to just Sell it and move it to the five twenty nine. That could still be the case, but as long as the child is okay with that, you're going to be fine. Where you run into problems is that if you don't use the money for that child and they find out about it, they can sue you, and they will probably get the money back. And you don't want to create a relationship like that, obviously, with your child. So you want to just make sure they're on board with you using that money for for non uh, you know. Um, For costs that they approve of, because it is technically their money. Because at 18, depending on each state, um, each state has the age of majority. I think in, uh, I don't know what it is in New York, but in Connecticut, it's 21. At 21, with those custodial accounts, they move into the child's name uh, automatically, and now it's their money.
1: So for the schools that don't use the FAFSA, how do they count parent and student assets then?
0: Yeah, great question. So there are around 200 schools, many of them private schools, that use a different calculation. it's the CSS profile and that's kind of like a black box. They don't actually release all the information with how they actually determine that and that's a separate thing that the, the child or, or the parent has to fill out and with that they will also then calculate your expected family contribution but you don't exactly know how they do it. They do actually you know count the student assets, a little more heavily. Instead of counting the child assets like on the FAFSA at 20%, they count them at 25%. So, it's usually a good idea for a parent as they're starting this process, there's a website College Bound to go to that website and sign up. You can get an estimate because it's not the FAFSA of what your FAFSA might look like as well as what the CSS profile might look like to see the different amounts of what you might qualify for.
1: So while there are a few schools that take that CSS profile, many of the schools will take the FAFSA.
0: Yes. I mean, all your public schools are going to take the FAFSA. It's just most of the private schools do not take the FAFSA.
1: Uh, So do some schools that don't use the FAFSA count additional assets?
0: They do. So what some schools might count is the equity in your house. So a school like, as I've read, Boston College might count the equity in your house and use it against you to see how much aid you could qualify for. So if you have a really nice house that you've paid off, right? It's always great to be debt-free. The school might say, oh, well, you know, now we're going to count this this asset that you could use to pay for a college, whereas the FAFSA doesn't count any equity in your primary residence. One other thing they count is that if you own a small business, if normally if you have less than 100 employees, well, I believe that's what it is, the FAFSA doesn't count it. But CSS schools will count that equity and that business in the calculation with less than 100 employees.
1: So, probably the most valuable part of this podcast for parents is how do they shelter their assets from FAFSA?
0: <laughs> well, we talked about it a little bit. Um, you know, looking at those UGMA or UTMA accounts, either trying to spend down that money before you apply or transferring those to custodial accounts. If you have a lot of cash or money in the bank, then you should think about moving that into something else. You could one thing you could do is you can move that to an, an annuity. The FAFSA doesn't count uh, annuities, non-retirement annuities, as well as there are certain life insurance policies you can move that to where they don't count the cash value in the life insurance policy. So those are two things that, or three things, I guess you could you could do and to try to reduce that money, or you could just you could spend it. Right, you could. Maybe bump up what you're putting into your 401k or put more into like an IRA or Roth IRA and then spend down your your cash before that or just you know pay a lot of your bills off. If you have a lot of credit card debt, maybe you just wipe that out so that you don't have this cash anymore. It's not counting against you.
1: With all this talk of people who should fill out the FAFSA, are there any people who should not fill out the FAFSA?
0: Well, yeah. Going back to that, so we didn't really talk about, but some people um, with really low income might actually qualify for a 100, for have zero EFC. So you could have a zero EFC and that means that a lot of schools would cover the full cost. So if you have um, very low income, I think under $50,000 and you don't own a small business, like you don't file schedule C, you don't need to complete the FAFSA. As well as I think if you're under, um, if you're receiving certain government benefits, then like uh, Medicaid or Social Security disability, you might not to, uh, need to complete the FAFSA.
1: So, Ryan, how many schools can you send your FAFSA form to?
0: I believe it's 10 schools you can send your FAFSA form to. But then you have some of the CSS profile schools that might, you know, they're probably not gonna accept it. So you're gonna have to fill out whatever their their questions are.
1: Right. And how often does the FAFSA need to be completed?
0: Every year. You're, you're, you complete the FAFSA as long as you're still qualifying for aid, right? If you no longer qualify for aid, then you don't need to complete it.
1: Yeah, no, that's tremendously important for parents to know that it's not just a one-time deal that you fill it out once. You have to do it every year that you require aid. And are there any uh, announced changes to the FAFSA? What do you know about that?
0: There are. So starting with the 2023-24 school year, the FAFSA form is changing and it's going from about 100 little over a hundred questions down to like 38 questions, a little more than three dozen. And yeah, streamlining it to try to align it better with people's tax returns because about 30% of the application, the FAFSA applications that are submitted have to be reviewed because there's questions about things that match up from the tax return. So this is trying to cut down on that. But there are some negative changes as well. So currently right now, when you have more than one child in college, you get a slight break on the expected family contribution. Each child is factored in and then reduces the expected family contribution. Well, unfortunately, um, that is changing and no longer will you get a break for that. No one really knows um, exactly when that's going to take effect. Because what would happen is that if you already were planning on getting this break, right, in the expected family contribution, and you've got a child who's a freshman, and now you've got another child who's going to school this year or next year, and then all of a sudden they change that, well, that would maybe be devastating to your ability to pay. So that is kind of up in the air as far as where that will go.
1: Ryan, from what you said about students who are seniors and are completing the FAFSA, what should parents do with their younger students?
0: Sure. So the FAFSA, right? Your, your student is a senior, pretty straightforward. You either complete it or you don't, and then you're going to find out what, what you're eligible for. But for younger students, you have to really think about planning because the FAFSA, which we didn't discuss, is based on your prior, prior year's tax returns, right? So you're filling out the FAFSA in 2021. It's based on your 2019 tax return. So thinking about that, you no, know, knowing when your child is going to be a senior, Doing things like trying to minimize your income for that year, um, trying to minimize capital gains that might be happening, and you know distributions from retirement accounts. Anything you can do that's going to minimize your income is going to potentially help you qualify. Number one for more aid. Secondly, is that you want to try to reposition some of these assets that we talked about before. You're going to be have to fill out the FAFSA, right? So for taxable investments, maybe these custodial accounts. Doing that in advance so that those capital gains that might come as a result of these these re, repositioning strategies are not going to show up on that tax return. So that's one thing. And then you should go on, you know, the College Bound website, and you should get an idea of what things look like right now, so that you can you know, make adjustments if necessary to you know, what you might qualify for. And then the other thing is that there's there's also the paper FAFSA which you can you can download. And there's a lot of helpful information on that as well. All right.
1: So Ryan, what are some tips from students to get the most help for college?
0: Well, I would say definitely filling out the FAFSA and also really looking at the different schools that are out there. So there's a lot of schools, first of all, that you need to know that don't provide merit scholarships. So these are a lot of your Ivy League schools um, you know Yale, right? Dartmouth, Columbia, Colgate—they—they're not going to provide merit scholarships. So th- that's that's one thing. And then you want to then look maybe to some smaller schools that are private schools are going to provide you with with aid. Because if if unless your income is really low, chances are you're not going to qualify for state aid from from local colleges. So you're going to have to look outside of maybe what you thought if you're looking to get the maximum. Reduction in the cost of college for yourself.
1: You know the the one thing that we keep reiterating to parents who listen to this podcast is to reduce stress, especially during this highly stressful time of college applications, is to plan ahead and have a good understanding. So, Ryan, thank you for your time and contributing to this. Uh, one last question: What is the net price calculator? I keep reading about that.
0: Sure. So. Once you know your expected family contribution, every school has what's known as a net price calculator, which then you fill out and that shows based on your expected family contribution how much it's going to actually cost you to go to that school. So you every school has this and you can you go to their website and you can you can find it, but some of these are actually based on data from 2 or 3 years before. So even though it's helpful to get an idea of what it might actually cost you at that school, right? Cuz it's tuition, room and board, books, any other any other costs. You still do need to wait until you actually get that that letter from the school telling you, right, what you actually qualify for.
1: So Ryan, thank you for joining us on the show this week. If people want to follow up with you, where can they get in contact?
0: They can go to com and right on there is a contact form to uh have one of my assistants reach out to set up a time. If you want to talk more about getting my help with either retirement planning or what we're talking about, you know, college, college planning.
1: Yeah. We'll put a link in the notes of this episode as well. So let's wrap up our episode with a hashtag prep pro tip. And uh, I think Ryan, you want to be our first prepped pro tip guest speaker. Sure. So Ryan, for a hashtag prep pro tip, what would you say?
0: I would say that once you have gotten your offer letter from the school, um, you want to make sure you can pair them. And even though one school might be offering you more money, it might not necessarily save you more because it really comes down to what the cost of that school is going to be. And then also you can go back to these schools and you can let them know, you can send them a letter and try to push them to see if they'll give you more money, right? Um, that does happen from time to time. They might decide to give you more, uh, especially to, if there's any, um, athletics involved as well, you can sometimes put pressure on them to get more out of them.
1: Yeah. One low key fact about the colleges is that they do have large endowments for the most part. So if you do appeal, hopefully they can help you out with what they have.
0: Yes, they do have a lot of money, some of these schools.
1: And Ryan, since you did my hashtag prep pro tip, I get to do your disclaimer. So you should consult a financial advisor familiar with your specific circumstances before you make any financial decisions. Nothing in this broadcast constitutes a solicitation for sale or a purchase of any securities. Any mention of rates or return are historical or hypothetical in nature and are not a guarantee of future return. Ryan Morrissey CFP is an investment advisor, representative of Morrissey Wealth Management LLC, a registered investment advisor. That was fun. So sitting across from me, we have Ryan from Retire With Ryan. My name is Naka, and this has been Hashtag Prepped.